Alright, how you doing, Desperation? You feeling good this Saturday morning? Well, I'm, I'm so thrilled to be with you. I was reflecting on this um, during the worship time, and uh, this is my eighth Desperation Conference. Uh, I, I've been part of this with David and the crew since the beginning, and it's an incredible thing. And I, you know, not to get all like sentimental with you guys, but when I was sitting, I was just sitting down in the back here while Charlie and the guys were leading worship, and I just felt so overwhelmed with how pleased God is with you. You know, I mean, really, like it, it's an incredible thing. And I don't know, I mean, you're, you guys are into it. You're worshiping. You're connecting with the living God. And I just had the sense that God is so pleased with you. He's so pleased with this movement, so pleased with this conference because it's not defined by any light show or any name or any person. It's defined by people seeking the face of God. And I think that makes God smile. So good job. Um, Hey, you know, I'd like to just tell you a little bit about myself. I, um, I've been here at New Life for nine years, but I was born in a country called Malaysia, which is about as far as you can go on the other side of the world before you start coming back. And uh, when I was 10 years old, my family moved from Malaysia to America. We lived in Portland, Oregon for about three years. My parents went to Bible school out there. Uh, I was in 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. Booyah! And um, moved back to Malaysia and finished out my high school years. And then, uh, and, then, and then came back to the States to go to college. And a couple years into my college experience, I met this girl. And uh, yeah... Yeah, she's a great girl. And I was a junior, she was a freshman. And when I first met her, she her hair was dyed blonde and she was real tan. And I was looking at her blue eyes through these gold-rimmed glasses of mine. And they were circular and they were gold. <laughs> and my hair was really, really short. And I got these big earlobe things, they were even bigger because my hair was short. And, uh, and I was wearing this sweater type thing. You know, I come from Malaysia again, and, and we didn't wear sweaters in Malaysia. Malaysia's right on the equator. It's pretty hot year-round. We have two seasons, hot and not so hot. Okay, and so when people found out I was coming to America for college, everybody wanted to help. Everybody wanted to pitch in. And so I got sweaters. I got turtlenecks. I got Russian wooly earmuffs. I got everything that people could possibly give to help me I got handed to me but I looked like a mess when I was you know in Oklahoma for those not so cold winters so when I met Holly I thought when I looked at her I thought yeah she probably is like a cheerleader from California or something you know and she looked at me and thought he's probably some sweet foreign nerdy guy you know and um by some divine act of providence we began hanging out and developing a friendship and I came to find out that she was really a farm girl from Iowa. Got any Iowa in the house? And, uh, and she came to find out that I was really a sweet, foreign, nerdy guy. So, uh, but, but somehow it's worked, and we've been married eight years this summer. I wanted to show you a picture of my wife and I, if we can put it on the screen. Um, yeah, look at that. Yeah, there she is. And uh, so we've been married, it'll be eight years coming up in August, and we've got two little girls, I want to show you pictures of them. Yeah, aren't they adorable? I know, I know. So that picture's actually a year old, but now Sophia, our oldest, is four, and Nora is two and a half. We're expecting a third child. We'll find out in two weeks what we're having. I know, it's exciting. Um, all that stuff Pete talked about last night works, you know. Um, the other stuff Pete talked about last night. Um, 
But uh, yeah, so, so we'll find out in a couple weeks what we're having, whether it's a boy or a girl. And uh, we're sort of expecting that it's a girl because that's what we make, you know. But, but if, we, if, if it was a boy, uh, I, I'm in trouble. I mean, my, my friends, people who really know me, have already started giving me a hard time because they said, Glenn, if you had a boy, what's going to happen? Because at five years old, he'll have a better arm than you will, you know, like... And, uh, you know, who, who's he going to ask to teach him how to build stuff? Because you don't build anything. I said, that's true, you know. But I do have a lot of friends who build stuff. I do rely on a lot of people to help me with stuff. Just the other day, I, I, yeah, I have tools. I just don't use them very often, you know. But the other day, I needed this piece of plywood cut because we're getting a refrigerator moved down to our basement, you know. So, you know, there's carpet there, so I need to get this piece of plywood cut. I've got a sheet of plywood. I've got a circle saw just didn't feel confident using it, you know. So I called a friend and said, hey, can you come over and make two cuts on this piece of plywood for me? He said, sure, you know. And I was like, well, let, let me try. Let me try doing the first cut myself, you know. So I'm like, you know. And I did it. I did it. I got one cut. And, um, but I, I rely, I, I've come to realize I rely on other people for a lot of help. Uh, I rely on people who are better at things than I am in, in a lot of areas of my life. I, I sort of outsource as much as I can. You know, if there's an oil change, I'm not like one of those guys that changes his own oil filter or whatever. I take it in to the shop, you know. The other day I took my car in to get wiper blades replaced. You know, I mean, I, I outsource a lot. I'm keeping the economy going, you know. And uh, I, I do rely on experts. But you know what I've, I've realized is I think we live in a society where so many of us do rely on experts to help us. If you can't get your cell phone working, if it's not syncing with your email, whatever, you, you either, you have two choices. You know, you either go into the expert IT guy to help you with that or you buy an iPhone. But there's, there's, you know, for the rest of us who can't afford that. So, but we rely on experts to help us when our computer's not working. And as you grow older in life, you'll probably have someone help you with your taxes or give you advice on this or that. And there's all these people that we've come to rely on to say, you know what? I don't know how to do this, but you know how to do this. So you just do it for me. And you know what started to happen is we've started to believe that there are God experts. That there are people who know how to pray in just the right way that God listens. Or to worship with just the right kind of musicality that God bends over the balcony of heaven and takes notice. There are people that know how to do certain things better than we can. And so we have resigned ourselves to thinking, ah, I'm just a second class Christian. It's okay. And the danger is this. It's not that there aren't people who are farther along in their walk with God than you are. There are. Isn't it true that there are people who've been walking with God for a longer time than you have? Isn't it true that there are those people? Yes. Isn't it true that we can learn from them? Absolutely. That's part of why we're here. But the danger comes when we cross this little line and we don't just believe that there are God experts or that there are people that can help us, but we start to cross this line and we say, not only do I believe that there are God experts, but I am going to let them do the work of knowing God for me instead of me. And I don't know what your experience has been like over the last couple of days here at Desperation, but sometimes at a conference like this, it's easier for the line between the, the zealots and the normal average Christians. It, it's easier for that line to become more and more uh, distinct. 
And maybe some of you are, have spent the last couple of days here at Desperation and you're thinking, man, I have not been in the mosh pit once. I'm not that kind of worship person. I just don't know. And when people are talking about prayer and 24-7 prayer and fervent prayer and people are talking about all this stuff. And I don't know if I am that girl or that guy. I don't know if I can be that. I don't know if I can do that. Maybe that works if your last name is Perkins, but it doesn't work for me. Or maybe that works if you have the talent that John Egan has. Maybe that's what worship is like. And I wish I could do that, but I'm not that person. And so maybe you've spent the last couple days standing, feeling like you're on the outside looking in. Feeling like you're, you're here and you see what's happening and you see people, you hear people screaming and you see people going nuts and you see people raising their hands and closing their eyes and every time you close your eyes you fall asleep. But you're just not sure. <laughs> what is this? People close their eyes and they hear God. I close my eyes and I'm snoring a few minutes later. You're like, what? what's happening? And maybe there's some of you and you're thinking, I, I, I want that life. I want to be like that. But I don't think I can ever get there. I don't think I am designed to be that. I'm probably not going to go into vocational ministry. I may not become a pastor. I may not go to this mission field. I, I, I think I'm just going to, I don't know, I'm like... I kind of want to grow up one day and get married and be a mom, or I kind of want to, you know, I just want to be a business guy. Is that so bad? You know. And there are people in our churches actually who've who've sort of function along those lines of thinking. You know, maybe you know people like this who they sort of act as if, well, pastor, you read the Bible. That's your job. I'll read the Wall Street Journal. I'll figure out how to make money, and then I'll tithe. That's my job. And you may not have formed formulated that line of thinking yet but you're headed down that road that this stuff is not for you it's for a bunch of crazy radicals who don't know what else to do with their summer but but, but me i've got plans i'm gonna go here and i don't know how i read the bible and i get zero out of it i know i'm supposed to but i open it up and i land in the genealogy and then i'm sleeping again And so something begins to happen in our hearts where we start to say, you know what? I guess there just are two kinds of Christians. I mean, I guess there's class division in the kingdom. I guess there are those who ride first class that God gives lots of benefits and freshly baked cookies to. And then there's me. I'm a coach class Christian. I ride, I fly economy. I'm kind of a Southwest Christian. I don't even have reserved seating. You know, I just... I'm an average, second-class sort of Christian. But you know what happens is we start to rely then on others to say what God is like for us. And then we start to, you know, so we take this first step to say, well, I guess I'm not like that. I guess I'm, then we take this next step to say, well, maybe I'll just ask them to tell me everything I need to know. So, hey, Mr. Prayer Guy, you, you, you just tell me what God's like and I'll go off of that. Hey, Mr. Preacher Man, you just tell me what the Bible says and then I'll, you know, uh, uh, apply that later. Could anybody give me the five steps to finding out who, my, who I'm supposed to marry? Could anybody give me the three keys to a successful life? Could anybody just tell me the six things I need to know in order to be a good Christian? Could somebody else go to God, get the download, and then give me the bullet points? Could you just do that? 
Because I'm not sure I can spend time praying. I'm not sure I can read. I'm not sure I belong over there. But I know that there are people who do. And so you go and then you just tell me. What's God like? Oh, God's like this? Oh, cool, man. That's great. And there are loads and loads of Christians who live like that, who fill our churches, who say, I don't have time to know God. I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to figure this out for myself. I don't have time to wrestle with God about my questions. You just go, pastor. You prepare some awesome sermon and then you bring the heat and then you give me the bullet points and I'll get out and I'll be happy and I'll have the podcast and then I'll go back to my life. Thank you. What a great deal. Could I have fries on the side? But you know what happens is all of a sudden your view of God, your view of who God is and what God is like becomes this patchwork of rumors, of secondhand information, of things that you heard a preacher say who heard another preacher say who heard another preacher say who heard his mama say it once when he was a kid. And it works its way down to you and you, you start to say, well, I think God does this. Well, I'm sure that God doesn't mind if we just fool around a little bit. And I, don't, I think God's pretty loving. I'm fr- and I heard one time, that God, and everything that we believe about God, all of a sudden one day is this just web of rumors, this patchwork of secondhand information. Chances are... If you haven't already hit a moment like this, chances are at some point in your life, you'll hit a crisis point. You'll hit a moment where you realize that your experience in life doesn't match what you've believed about God. Something happens. You prayed and they didn't get healed. You you, uh, shared the gospel out of obedience and instead of getting saved, they made fun of you. I I don't know. Something didn't line up. You thought it was going to be this way because this is what someone told you about God. And so you lived this way and then life all of a sudden went this way. And things began to unravel and derail. This is the moment That so many Christians, a lot of times in their college years, a lot of times later, sometimes before, but this is the moment where a lot of Christians say, forget it. Man, that must have just been something that worked when I was a a teenager, when I was not. That must have been just some kind of rally hype thing. It must not be true because this is my experience and this is contrary to what... I used to believe, so forget it. I'm throwing up my view of God, I'm throwing up faith, I'm throwing away prayer, I'm just, I'm crumpling, it's just this, it's it's a mess, it doesn't work. I know David has talked in the past about stories of, of people that he's known that were once fervent, were once on fire for God, were once determined to be lights in this dark world, and all of a sudden, they hit this crisis point, they say, forget it, it must not be true. And you run into people that used to be in your youth group, used to be at desperation, used to be at all this stuff, and all of a sudden they, ah, I don't believe that anymore. Yeah, I'm not sure. Can I tell you that those crisis moments are your greatest opportunities to engage God for yourselves? Can I tell you that those moments when your view of God is too thin to sustain you through the difficulties of life, can I tell you that those are the moments that God is saying, would you come and wrestle with me for yourself? 
Can I tell you that what God is waiting is for is for us to say, I'm going to stop letting my view of God be shaped by just what I've heard and what I've been told, but I'm going to find out for myself as I dig into the word and prayer. It can be our greatest moments. You know, David in the Bible had a moment just like this. Had a moment where things began to unravel and, and it didn't, didn't work as he thought it was supposed to work. It didn't go the way he thought it would. And the story, if you have your Bibles, is in 2 Samuel verse 6. Hold, it up, hold them up if you've got your Bibles. It's good to have your Bibles at desperation. 2 Samuel chapter 6 verse 1. A little bit of the background to this, this story is a story about the Ark of the Covenant. And I'm going to show you a little cardboard replica that's looking pretty squashed underneath the cloth. But I'll show you that in a minute. The Ark of the Covenant was this most sacred piece of furniture to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, okay? Some of you maybe, you've heard something about this. There was some Indiana Jones movie way back when about, okay? This, this is this, the Ark of the Covenant is this wooden box that's covered with gold. Inside it is the law, the, the two tablets, the Ten Commandments. On top of it were this, this molding out of one piece of gold of angels, the cherubim. It represented the mercy seat. It represented where God would speak. It represented, in a nutshell, God's presence with Israel. Now what's happened is way back before David was king, way back when, when, when Samuel even was a little boy, way back when, when Eli was sort of this priest slash judge over Israel, Israel had been living disobediently, they had not been obeying God, and they brought the ark out in the middle of battle thinking it would work like a lucky charm, you know, God is my little genie, I'm sure it'll work, and it doesn't work, they lose the battle, the Philistines capture the ark. And the Philistines then get in a host of trouble and they, they start to say, forget it, we can't handle this, this is not for us. They send it back and it's, it's been in this outskirt town. And one day David becomes king and he says, you know what, we've been missing God's presence. We've been missing worship. We've been missing God being at the center of our city. Let's bring him back. Good thing or bad thing? Okay. Make sure you're with me. Second Samuel chapter 6. And David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set up from Baalah of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name. The name of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. And they set the ark of God on a new cart. And brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ohio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ohio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel was celebrating with all their might before the Lord. With songs and with harps and lyres and tambourines and sistrums and cymbals. Lots of instruments, okay? Verse 6, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out his hand, reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen had stumbled. Now get this picture. They've got this gigantic wooden box covered in gold, a sacred piece of furniture. They've got it on some kind of cart that's being driven by a couple of oxen, a couple of cows, okay? And one of the cows, as cows sometimes do, was a little clumsy, slips, the ark goes sliding off the cart, Uzzah reaches out his hand. Verse 7, the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. And therefore God struck him down and he died there before the ark of God. 
Now imagine this scene. Imagine a, a scene where it's an incredible worship moment. Not unlike what we've experienced here, where there's music and there's dancing and there's singing and everything is going right and God is in the midst of it and all of a sudden, boom, the worship leader gets struck down. So what? You know, everybody's dancing and they're leaving and all of a sudden, the room splits open and the Starship Enterprise or whatever lifts up and... Lightning comes down from heaven and strikes John Egan. It's terrible. What began as revival that day ends up as a funeral. What began as a happy day ends up with crying. With I mean, imagine the shock, the horror of that feeling of like, what happened? What went wrong? If this isn't a crisis moment, I don't know what is. This is a moment where David and all the people think that they're doing something so right. And yet it ends up so wrong. What happened? What happened? As they go back and they begin to explore and, 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 and they're thinking about, what, wait, wait a second, why did this, why did this happen? You know, Second Samuel is paralleled, there's a parallel group of stories that sort of Give, give explanation into this in, 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 a, in a book called Chronicles, which is a couple pages later. But First Chronicles 15 is this parallel account of the same story. And there's this verse, First Chronicles 15, verse 13, says this. It was, this is David talking, and he says, It was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. Now, wait a second. I thought the Lord's anger broke out against us because Uzzah, you know, put his hand. Not first. Yes, that was a problem that Uzzah touched that he's not supposed to put his hand directly on it. Okay, but the real problem, David says, it was because you, the Levites, didn't bring it up that the Lord broke out in anger against us. We did not, look at this phrase, we did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. Now stop for a second. In essence, David is saying, look, this happened because we stopped seeking God about doing this the right way. Now, if you know anything about David's life, if you've ever read 1 Samuel, if you've ever recall the flannel graph stories of David running as a fugitive, maybe you'll remember... That in 1 Samuel 20 and 21, 22, 23, 24, all the stories of David as a fugitive, you couldn't barely go a paragraph without seeing or reading a phrase like, and David inquired of the Lord. Or in our language, and David sought God. David sought the Lord. David began to seek God. So here's a question. What happened between David, the teenager, running as a fugitive... Who was seeking God and David, the 30 year old king, who says, Oh, yeah, Uzzah died because I wasn't seeking God. David maybe was one of the kids that would have been a desperation. He certainly lived in desperation. Desperately running away from Saul and running away from enemies. And in his moments of desperation, he was seeking God. Seeking God. One day he becomes king. 
starts to, I don't know if we need to really seek God more. Let's just, we got to bring the ark up. How should we do it? We'll do it this way. Yeah, let's do it that way. And it's because David stops. This is our first little clue into what went wrong. It's because David sort of had stopped seeking God that they began to make the wrong decisions about how to bring the ark up. Our second bit of clue is in how the ark itself was built. And, and you'll have to forgive this cardboard replica. It's fairly dramatic. Here's a cherubim that's bent over. It's not quite right. Okay, can you see that? No, it's not bad, huh? Now, one of the things, one of the, I didn't build it. I didn't build it, don't, but, but somebody did. Um, somebody that I outsourced to. Um, <laughs> uh, one of the things about the ark that you notice is it's got these funky looking things here. What, what, what are these? Poles. Now, why would you put poles on a box? Anybody? To carry it. The way the ark was meant to be transported from one place to another, it was supposed to be carried. Not like this, not like a deadlift, okay? But like this. That you'd carry it up on the shoulders of the Levites. You're right. The shoulders of the Levites. What went wrong that day is... Instead of seeking God and then remembering that priests, Levites, were supposed to carry the ark, they decided to put it on a cart. Now flip back a few pages in your Bible, 1 Samuel 4, 5, and 6, you'll find, you'll find that there was someone else who put the ark on a cart. Anybody know who it was? The Philistines. I heard, I'll take that as Philistines. The Philistines, when they were... You know, they, they, had, they had gotten all these boils and tumors and rats and gross stuff. And they're like, okay, forget it. We're going to send the ark back to Israel. The way they send it back is by putting it on a cart. The way they send it back is by putting it on a cart. And you have to wonder what the conversations were like. When David said, okay, we're going to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. Did somebody say, hey, David, um, Levites... Kind of getting on in year, years, a little old backs, kind of hurting. The whole carrying, lifting thing, I mean, it's just, it's, we're a little tired. Uh, we're, we're a little worn out. And David, or maybe David's saying this, guys, they've got this new invention, it's called the cart. It's a wheel. It's a major technological breakthrough. Somebody came up with a wheel. It's when you wrap wood around like this in a circle and you put another one on the other side and things move. Wow! This was a big deal back then, all right, guys? Come on, I know you're not impressed with a wheel. But this was a big deal. And you're wondering if, if somebody, either David or somebody said, you know what, there's an easier way to do this. There's a more convenient way to do this. There's sort of a shortcut to this. We don't have to carry the presence of God. We don't have to have Levites go through the whole business of, uh, you know, you got to have a couple guys on each side and, you know, lift it up and it's heavy. And uh, We don't have to mess it. We can just use a cart. It's easier. It's quicker. All right. What am I saying? Because we can, we can stand here and we can dog the Levites and be like, man, those Levites... Man, what were they thinking, man? One tribe out of 12 got to carry God's presence and they said, nah, eh, 
One tribe out of twelve got the privilege of being carriers of God's presence. And they said, nah, let a couple of cows do it. And it's easy for us to say, well, oh man, those guys. Or David, man, David, what happened? You lost your passion, didn't you, David? You used to seek God as a child and now you're... We could, we, could go on, we could go on and on and on and on. But you know what the Bible says about you? In 1 Peter 2.9, the Bible says that you are a royal priesthood. In other words, you are the Levites of today. If you're not carrying the presence, who is? You are the ones that God has chosen to be the carriers of his presence. And yet we are not very different from those Levites back then because we kind of say, uh, you know, there's an easier way to do this. There's a more convenient way to do it. I'm going to use this cart. What's a cart? I'd suggest that a cart is anything that you rely on to carry the presence of God instead of you. A cart is anything that you rely on to carry God's presence instead of you. Maybe it's what we talked about at the beginning. Maybe it's a God expert. Maybe it's, well, my youth pastor or my youth leader or my mom or my dad, my older brother, my older sister. Maybe it's the desperation conference. Maybe you, you live all year long saying, I don't know how to feel God. I don't know how to pray. I don't know how to seek God. I don't know how to know God. But every summer I just feel so good when I come to desperation. Maybe that's become a cart for you. You sort of said, I, I don't know about this business of me being a carrier of God's presence. I don't know about this whole thing about me actually being in contact with God. I, I, I just want a, a cart. Maybe your cart is a certain CD or a certain band. And you're like, well, if I don't have this CD, I don't know how to worship. I don't know how to encounter God. I don't know how to pray if I don't have this, if I don't have that. And I, I just... I, Maybe your cart is what the rest of your youth group is doing and you think that's good enough. In case you think I'm being too harsh on you, I want you to know that I've been guilty of having carts. About two and a half years ago, almost three years ago now, we in this church faced one of the most difficult things a church could go through. We went through the, the moral failure of, of a leader, of a pastor. And the, the things that happened to me in the weeks and months that followed that really had nothing to do with, with him. or It had everything to do with my own heart. And it made me begin to realize how much in my own life I have been coasting. How much in my own life it was good enough for me to know that somebody else was praying and that somebody else was seeking God, that somebody else was being consistent with their Bible reading. It didn't have to be me. I was part of this. So when I say that your youth group becomes a cart, I'm not saying get rid of your youth group by any means. 
I'm just saying I know what it feels like to be part of something that's so good that you forego contact with God for yourself. I know what that's like. I know what it's like to be part of something that has all the trappings of success and the blessing of God that you start to believe, that I started to believe that, well, I mean, if I'm really spending time seeking God, I mean, or not, it doesn't really matter. And I read this little book in early, uh, late 2006 about a professor who used to teach at Harvard. His, his name is Henry Nowen. He used to teach at Harvard and he, and he was experiencing tremendous amounts of success. He was at the peak of his game in, his, in terms of his career. But he describes what was going on inside of him as feeling spiritual death. He said, I was praying poorly, loving people carelessly. And overall, his heart was dying on the inside. And now and began to ask himself this question. He said, do I know God more? Do I know Jesus more this year than I did last year? That question tore me up. Because I was the kid. Okay, I was the kid who I homeschooled my high school. And so I, I would spend couple hours a day like reading my bible and sitting at the piano and worshiping god i when i was sick in bed i didn't watch tv i listened to sermon tapes i was that nerdy kid i loved spending time with god i loved knowing jesus and then i woke up one day in the midst of a scandal in the midst of a crisis and began to have to be honest with myself and say you know what i don't i don't know if i know jesus more this year than I did last year. Maybe a test if, if, if events have become a cart for you is if you're sitting here today and you've been at a few desperation conferences or been at different youth camps. Maybe a test is just that question. Well, do you, pers- do you personally, actively know God more this year than you did last year? And I can't answer that for you. I can't give you the six signs. I I, I don't know that stuff. That's got to be you and the Holy Spirit. But I know this. Anytime we trade an active living relationship with Jesus, anytime we trade that in for a stale, sentimental, rumor-filled version of Jesus, death enters our life. It happened that day when Uzzah was struck down. In the midst of worship and revival came death because they were using carts. They were relying on secondhand knowledge about what God preferred. But if they had sought him for themselves, they would have remembered God preferred priests who carry his presence. God made us for contact with him. That's the point. God made you for contact with him. That's it. It's all right. Okay. So, so what do we got to do? How then must we live? There's two things the Levites did that day, the next day actually, when they were trying to get this right. It's not the very next day, but you know, the next time they tried to bring the ark up. And the first thing they did 
It's in, it's in the Chronicles account again. The first thing they did was, in, it's in First Chronicles 15 verse 12. He said to them, this is David talking to the Levites again. You are the heads of the Levitical families. You and your fellow Levites are to consecrate yourselves and bring up the ark of the Lord. The God of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. The first thing they had to do was be consecrated. Be consecrated. I know one of the vows here at Desperation is to have this consecrated heart, consecrated life. What does it mean to be consecrated? Because I think, I think we've given consecration, sanctification, we've given all those words a bad name. And it's like what Pete was talking about last night, where we think what that means is, I can't have any fun, I gotta eat And we focus, when you talk about consecration, we, we, we think about all the things we cannot do anymore. But you know, the Hebrew idea of consecration is very similar, it's very closely connected to this idea of being betrothed, or in our world, engaged. Anybody here engaged? Yep, I see a girl back there. Your ring's shining. Somebody over here. Yeah, dude. It's people engaged, okay? Anybody here about to get engaged? No, don't answer that. You're like, I don't, I don't know, are we, you know? <laughs> Awkward. How many of you have been engaged? You're married now, you, you have been engaged. Okay, awesome, awesome, right? <laughs> Yay for en- engagement. But you know, if the day you get engaged, you start to make a list for yourself of all the people you can't talk to anymore, and all the old boyfriends you should stop Facebooking, and all the old girls you shouldn't text late at night anymore, if you had to do that, and that was your heart when you got you're missing the point, aren't you? You're kind of missing the point. You could say that being engaged is about all the people you can't have a close relationship, emotional connections with anymore. That's true, but it's missing the point. And it's the same thing when we talk about consecration. Well, I can't watch this kind of movie and I can't listen to that and I can't go and I can't go to these parts. It's true, but that's not the point. Because the point of consecration, just like the point of engagement, is not what you're separated from, but who you're separated to. It's about the one that you love. It's about the one that you're going to marry. It's about the one you're giving your life to. When David told the Levites, consecrate yourself, what he was saying is, listen, nobody else gets to be carriers of God's presence. Nobody else on the face of the earth gets this privilege, but you to set yourself apart for God. And what I want to say to you is we were made for this kind of contact with God. This kind of carrying contact with God. Nobody else gets to do it until they come to a saving, regenerating knowledge of Jesus Christ. But you know what? You're here. So we talk about being consecrated. It's not about a thousand no's. It's about one all-consuming yes.
It's about a yes to Jesus that says, you know what? I could spend my time doing this. I could hit the snooze button a little one more time. I could sit in front of Sports Center for another hour. Maybe they'll have new highlights. I could do this. I could. They're not wrong. It's not bad. I could do this. But for love, I will read my Bible. For love, I will steal away and pray. For love, I will set myself apart to know God. For love, for love, for love. The second thing the Levites did that day was they offered sacrifices. And, and the way I would say it for us is we, so we be consecrated. And the second thing, we be, become, be a living sacrifice. And what the Levites did that day was after they set themselves apart and, and they said, okay, you know, we're going to be the carriers. We're the ones, we're the ones that God has chosen. We're the ones God set apart for this. We're going to do this. It says after six steps, they offered seven bulls and seven rams before the Lord. Now, there's some reason to suggest that it was not just after the first six steps, but after every six steps. So that the path was a bloody trail all the way from Obed-Edom's house where the ark was, all the way to Jerusalem. A bloody road of sacrifice. Now, we understand You can probably work ahead of me right now and guess that that bloody trail is the blood of Christ that's made the way for us to come before God. That is true. That's absolutely true. But what God wants from us is to not offer our lives as a living sacrifice to earn our way to God. That way has been paved by a blood much purer than yours or mine, the blood of Jesus. But what God wants from us is just as Paul wrote in Romans 12:1 Brothers and sisters I beseech you by the mercies of God in view of God's mercy in light of this blood that he shed in light of this love that he's lavished on you so not to earn back or pay back or anything like that but just in view of that would you offer your own life as a living sacrifice I love this passage in, in, in Matthew verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 13. It's in the message translation and um, it's incredibly convicting. It says it this way. This is Jesus talking. He says, don't look for shortcuts to God. Don't look for shortcuts to God. The market is flooded with surefire, easygoing formulas for a successful life that can be practiced in your spare time. Don't fall for that stuff, even though crowds of people do. The way to life, to God, is vigorous and requires total attention. I suggest that the way that we sometimes live is that we keep looking for shortcuts to God and God keeps trying to lead us on that long, bloody walk. And we keep trying to find the quick, give me the, just the quick things, I mean, just to show me how to like become a, an awesome prayer warrior, live a desperate life. Show me how to do that in like three minutes a day. Is it like, you know, like one minute abs? Can I be like a one minute prayer warrior? You know, like there's...
We keep looking for these shortcuts, these ways that will get us to become men and women who actually know the living God. And what Jesus is saying, look, there are no shortcuts. The way to God, the way to life is vigorous and requires your total attention. It requires that every six steps, so to speak, there's this living sacrifice. It requires that every day there's this offering of your life so that every day you're wrestling with God and bringing before Him your will, your ambitions, your selfishness, your goal, your dreams, your boyfriend or girlfriend, the things that you want for yourself, you're bringing those things before God and you're wrestling with Him about it and in the end there is bloodshed and it's yours. Because that's what God wants from us. If we're going to be people who will not live with carts and will not be content to let somebody else do it for us, then we're going to have to learn how to be consecrated and how to be living sacrifices. See, just think for a moment. Imagine for, for a minute what your church would be like, what your youth group would be like, what your college group would be like, what your campus would be like. If instead of walking in on a Sunday or a Wednesday night and saying, man, hope the worship leader brings it today. Man, who's the band? Man, I hope they bring it, man. I hope they bring it. Now, who's preaching? Man, I hope they bring the heat. I don't know, maybe, maybe you don't talk like that. We do around here. Yeah. Now, who's, who's speaking? Man, I hope, they, I hope they bring it, man. I hope they bring it. What if you, instead of walking in and saying that, you say, you know what? Forget it if they bring it or, or not. I'm bringing it. What if you bring it? What if you become the carrier of God's presence into your churches, into your youth groups, into your college groups, into your campuses? What if you bring it? What if it's no longer about, well, I hope someone else is, you know, I hope someone else is carrying. What if you say, you know what, I am committing to pray. And even if I don't get it, I'm going to try to keep reading the Bible. I'm going to find a good study Bible with good notes that will help me make sense of these stories that happened thousands of years ago. I'm going to try and I'm going to find mentors and coaches and I'm going to look to leaders to help. But I'm going to do that so that when I step on the scene, it's not just me hoping and wishing, but it's me carrying in the presence of God. What would happen? What would happen if we lived like that? See, I want to say this. The issue is not, I am not suggesting that you try to find out all about God on your own. I'm not saying that you do this by yourself. I'm just saying that you do this for yourself. Does that make sense? Let me give you an analogy. In Colorado, there are a lot of hiking trails. I sometimes go on hikes. Sometimes. Rarely. It's been a long time. But sometimes, once at least, I've went, gone on the hike. <laughs> More than that. But there are these hiking trails in Colorado, and it's gorgeous to take a beautiful you know, hike up in the mountains and forest. And at the beginning of a hiking trail, there's always this trail map. And it tells you, okay, this is the three-mile loop if you want to go seven miles, don't, you know, stay on this one. And then, you know. There's two pitfalls that you fall into as Christians with regard to this. The one is to, is to spend all day staring at the trail map. Wow, man. But that trail's gorgeous. Whoa, dude, look at the leaves. 
And then hikers are coming off the trail, and you're like, how was it? Oh, it was spectacular. And you're like, I knew it. I knew it, man. And then you start to get a little bolder, and new hikers are coming. You're like, dude, have you been on this trail? They're like, no, we're about to do it. It's amazing. Like, have you ever been? No, but I've talked to people, man. It's rad. Rad? Do people say that? You don't say that anymore, do you? Okay. It's cool. Okay. And, and, and you're standing there and you spent all your Saturday at this trailhead staring at the map, talking to hikers who've come off of it. And, and eat. you're even a good salesperson for the trail to new hikers. Dude, you got to check this out. This is the most amazing Colorado hike ever. Like, have you taken it? No, 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 man. But I've, I've talked to lots of people who have. And that's what we do sometimes. Dude, you got to know Jesus. Why does our evangelism not work? Because you've never been on the trail for yourself. Man, you've got to find out about Jesus. He'll change your life. Do you know this Jesus? Well, I mean, I mean not exactly, but I, I once heard a sermon. I, I, how are we going to be lights in the world when we've not taken the journey for ourselves? Anybody asks us about the trail, we're like, well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I've heard, right? The other mistake is to say, who needs a trail map? Hey, who needs a trail? I'm going. And you wander around, you run out of water, and you're lost. Sun begins to set, you get in the fetal position and suck your thumb and start crying. Like, ah, bears. Bears. It's like a bunny, you know, bears. Who needs a trail map? I can figure this out on my own. And those, that's, that's the other pitfall that some Christians take. I don't need church. I don't need youth group. I don't need anybody. I don't need a leader. I don't need books. I don't need help. I'll just figure this out. And then they get into heresy. And then they're, they're the believing funky things about God. And there's no such thing as hell. And there's, you know, you've wandered off. My point is not to ignore leaders or coaches or mentors or books. I'm not saying ignore those. I am saying use those things as trail maps for you to take the journey for yourself. Because the map is great, but the journey is better. Because this conference is awesome, but your living relationship with Jesus is better. You've got to believe that. There is a world that's dark out there. There is a world that is, is, is desperate for hope, for life, for joy, that's waiting for someone to be a carrier. That's waiting for the light that you carry. But how can we step into this dark world if we're not carriers of God's presence? What difference will it make if we step on the scene with all of our secondhand information about God? It won't, ma- it won't matter at all. What is going to matter is if we are living in contact with Jesus. Some of you, you're here and you are at a crisis point in your faith or in your life. Maybe it's something your parents, a divorce, your parents are going through, have just been through. Maybe it's a deal with friends that have betrayed you. I, And you're sort of on this edge of like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I would encourage you that if you would, in the midst of that, bring your questions to God and wrestle with him. Because you know what wrestling is? It's a contact sport. 
And that even wrestling with God with your questions and your confusion is still contact with him. There was a man in the Bible who did exactly that, Job. Job goes through a series of ridiculously unfortunate events. And at the end of it, and he brings his questions to God all along the way. God help, God why, God where were you? And God fires back a series of questions of his own. And in the message translation, Job 42 verse 5, he says this. Job falls on his knees. He says, I admit, I admit, I've lived by rumors of you, but now I have it all firsthand. With my own eyes and ears. Would you stand? I want us this morning as we as we close together, I want us to sing a song, but more than that, I want us to bring our hearts before Jesus. Because what we're trying to let the Lord shine on our hearts and cause us to see is this. If you are going through this crisis moment, then wrestle with God in the midst of your questions. You may not get questions answered, but you will emerge with the first-hand faith. And maybe you're here and you're like, oh, life is great. I'm not going through questions. I'm not. All right. All right. Then still come and make contact with Jesus. He wants us to be carriers. He wants us to be carriers of his light, of his hope of his joy, of his peace. He wants us to go into this broken world and be Jesus, be his hands and feet. But even before that, he wants us to live in contact with him. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we're asking you this morning that you would help us. Help us to come before you help us to seek you in the midst of difficulties in the midst of normal life help us never to be complacent never to be settling for just something else that we've heard God make us a generation of people who would seek you firsthand for ourselves to know you to take that long often bloody walk with you so that our faith so that our journey is firsthand make us carriers of your presence of your life in Jesus name everybody said Amen